Yo, welcome to episode 7 of the Hoops Fix podcast, here with your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate, and today we are coming to you from St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean. I'm out here for a week with Midnight Manor's travel team, who are competing in the Independence Basketball Classic against various teams from the island, and luckily enough, I got the invite. Um, it's been a mad month for me, a lot of travelling, uh, started off the, the month in Italy, uh, well in Sardinia, uh, and then I flew to Madrid. I was in Madrid for a couple of days uh, with Nike and Foot Locker, and then I came home for a nine-hour pit stop before flying out here um, to join Midnight Madness. So it's, I'm tired. It's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of fun, though. It's been amazing to experience different cultures, see how the basketball is in different places, um, and I'm extremely grateful. And this week, obviously, with, with the amount of time we've got on our hands, there's, there was, there's only been four games, five games. There's going to be another game tonight um, that have been played over the course of the week. There's been a lot of downtime. Uh, and so, you know, I'm out here with Namo Shiri, who is the uh, founder of Reach and Teach Midnight Manus. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him. Um, and we actually recorded a podcast over a year ago uh, that was meant to be one of the first or second episodes. Um, but we ended up going for about three and a half hours uh, and digressing a lot from the topics of conversation and just basically having a chat. And uh, I thought it was too much and didn't have enough focus. I did a poor job of, of guiding the interview. So we said we were going to record it again. Um, and kind of out here, it proved to be the perfect opportunity. So uh, we sat down poolside. Um, there are times in this interview, it gets a little bit windy. Um, but you can still hear what people are saying. But that's just to make you aware of the surroundings we were in. Not to make you jealous or anything. Um, but it was a really interesting conversation. You know, I think Nama has a lot of value to provide to the British basketball community with everything that he's done with Reach and Teach, which is now the by far um, biggest club uh, if you want to call it that, he explains that in the interview, but the biggest biggest organisation, biggest club in the UK in terms of registered players, uh, and they became that within a year. So, you know, it's interesting to find out how he did that and what he's done that other people haven't been able to replicate. And on the same basis, we also spoke a fair bit about funding, sponsorship, all that kind of stuff that Midnight Manus has historically been very successful with, um, whereas other organisations tend to uh, struggle. So yeah, it was a really good conversation, really interesting, managed to keep it to an hour and a half, um, but yeah, really interesting. So have a, have a listen, let me know what you think. As always, my email is sam at hoopsfix.com. Uh, I read and reply to every single email I receive, so please do get in touch, let me know what you think, um, let me know if you have any questions, let me know if you have any suggestions for future um, podcast guests. And also, uh, if you have a moment, it would be much appreciated if you could go onto iTunes uh, and rate the podcast, give it a rating, uh, give it a, a feedback, a comment, uh, and it helps uh, the rankings and will help the podcast be found by more and more people, which is the whole idea. I want as many people to listen to this as possible um, and for it to spread the word of British basketball. So anyway, that's enough from me. Um, here is the Podcast episode seven uh, with Namo Shiri. Welcome to the Who's Fix podcast. We are here in a very special location this afternoon. We're actually in St. Kitts and Nevis. I'm out here with Midnight Manus, uh, the Midnight Manus travel team uh, that's here for a week competing in the Independence Basketball Classic. And I've managed to tie down Namo Shiri. Um, for a conversation to talk basketball. So, Namo, I am honoured to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much, sir. It's an honour to be here. 
Honoured to be here in this lovely location, of course, with the man that can, Sam Sfix. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, obviously, we you know, the thing that, and this is, we've had this conversation before, uh, just for the listeners, we actually recorded the podcast about a year ago, and we talked too long we went on about three and a half hours and we went off on a lot of tangents um so afterwards we kind of said let me let's do this again and try and keep it a little more focused a little bit more on point um but the first question i asked then and it's exactly the same question now is i think a lot of people you've got your fingers in many pies um and if you were to tell someone what it is that you do um what would you say um everything (laughs) i'd say um you know first and foremost i guess um I am the CEO of Reach and Teach, um, and Reach and Teach is the umbrella organisation that runs a number of basketball programmes that all the listeners in the UK will be aware of, Midnight Madness being a very high profile one, and of course um, the London School of Basketball, should we say the School of Basketball, um, and you know, Next Level and uh, you know, obviously coaching programmes and so on and so forth. So Reach and Teach really is the, the main organisation that uh, you know, kind of shores up all the bits and pieces that we do what's that is that music where's that music coming from oh it's not iPad okay <laughs> we just sort that out um, so Region Teach is the umbrella organisation uh, how long has Region Teach been running when did you first set it up um, and kind of I guess what is the the overarching goal with it um, so the genesis on Reach and Teach really uh, Reach and Teach actually doesn't date back further than Midnight Madness um, we started Midnight Madness is our fifteenth year now. Um, and when I started Midnight Madness, put your hand over the mic. There we go. Yeah, because it's just really windy. That's, yeah, yeah. Cool. Carry on. Sorry. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Um, yeah, it dates back fifteen years um, from a Midnight Madness perspective. And you know, when I started Midnight Madness, it really was with um, the intention of eventually setting up some of the programs we now do with Reach and Teach. But Midnight Madness spiraled and grew so quickly, um, you know, it, it got to a point where it seemed, I tried back in the day actually, side note, I tried back in the day to come up with this Midnight Madness Communities mm-hmm. program, and I actually called it Midnight Madness Communities, but it just didn't sit right, and it felt like it was kind of compromising what everybody had gotten to know what Midnight Madness was for. And so, you know, a few years in, when it got really big with uh, obviously the support from Nike, um, you know, I kind of felt that you know, we needed to start another organization that allowed us to fulfill on the main goals uh, of why we started this in the first place, which is really about access to opportunity, um, you know, community and grassroots, um, you know, the diversionary programs and so on and so forth that we currently do with Reach and Teach. And so around uh, 2005, 2006, we came up with the idea of Reach and Teach. And Reach and Teach um, initially started out with doing some coaching programs in schools. Um, and then 2006, 2007, I was approached um, by somebody, uh, Brian Dickens actually, who was uh, down at the Sports Action Zone, to come out of a community basketball program. He's aware, obviously, of uh, Midnight Madness and some of the work that we did and was starting to do from a Reach T standpoint and knew um, some of the stuff I'd been involved with and asked us to come up with a community basketball pro- pilot project um, for the old Lillian Bayless site. And essentially, um, that community basketball project um, underneath the umbrella of Region Teach became you know, what now is known as the London School of Basketball, you know, in some shape or form. And so it really tied to, started to kind of snowball, really, from about 2006, 2007, um, and then just grew from there. Really. 
and obviously everything's kind of like tied in in a kind of quite a nice little way isn't it so you've got you've almost got every piece to the puzzle now yeah, yeah. I mean that was a big part of um, you know this whole movement if you like you know it was never you know, I didn't start out trying to be all things to all people um, what I was trying to do you know anybody that knows me and you know this as well Sam first and foremost I'm pro um, GB basketball I'm pro British hoops um, I've come from the game you know I'm a part of the game and I'm a lifer as they like to term the term the phrase but you know, for me um, I just really try to focus in on the, the gaps in the marketplace and you know I looked at what was missing based on my own experience as a player based on my own experience as a coach um, and, and really reach and teach sought to address some of those gaps and you know, first and foremost um, access to opportunity was a big driver uh, but off the back end of that when you do one thing pretty well then another need emerges and it just kind of spirals from there and so you know a big part of our whole thing with the access to opportunity piece is really about you know what can we do to help the game overall you know we're not and we're never in the game to necessarily be the you know the kind of top end pro type um, organization as far as like the BBL or whatever it may be um, our whole intention was about grassroots because we think that there is massive uh, we think we, we know actually that basketball across Britain is hugely popular and probably more so um, than is currently being reported but I just think that there's a, a lot of work to do around proving that and really getting even a semi-casual interested fan you know converted into a full-blown either basketball player basketball fan basketball coach whatever it may be so you know, reach and teach at this point you know, um, seeks to increase participation and make sure that participation is sustained. It's sustained through, you know, grassroots leagues, um, you know, getting more community clubs set up. You know, it's not reinventing the wheel, but I think what we do, because of the various programs we run, is probably have a little bit of a different um, tint to it, if you like. You know, uh, because of the Midnight Madness stuff that we do on the top end, you know, I think um, our stuff probably comes across a little bit cooler. Mm -hmm. than um, some of the other stuff that's out there as far as um, grassroots provision goes and um, you know we try to leverage that and, and use our position from a midnight madness standpoint to put some heat underneath you know the grassroots and the infrastructure of the game um, and package it all together so if somebody wants to come into the sport you know as a uh, you know whether it be from the commercial sector and they're interested in saying look you know I want to get involved in uh, getting behind a hot event or you know a hot brand mm -hmm. or you've got midnight madness and you know what midnight madness will allow us to reach out to to fans that our grassroots programs otherwise would never be able to speak to. Mm -hmm. You know, the average person is not going to be interested in coming to, you know, a Sunday morning league at the CBL to watch kids play or whatever. But you know, for Midnight Madness, you know, they're, they're maybe interested in that. So if we can use that to build new relationships and let them know what we're doing, you know, with the grassroots stuff and where maybe either themselves or their children or nieces or nephews or whatever can get involved locally, you know, at this point across London. Know in playing um, the game and getting involved the local teams, and that's what the you know the London School of Basketball and the Region Teach Agenda is about. So yeah, we, we try to um, provide some type of a, a top to tail mm -hmm. approach to it all. Um, and again, it's still a work in progress. You know, it's still a work in progress. We've you know we're not new to this. It's 15 years now, really, in the making. But you know, as I've learned over time, you know, um, if you're really going to try to impact the game in a positive way, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, so got to be in it for the long haul but that's fine as I said before my life so you know, we'll do what it takes and uh, be around when it uh, all comes through and obviously if, if I'm looking at things uh, from an outsider's point of view within a year of within a year of you setting up London School of Basketball you would uh, 
biggest participation club in the UK, right? Yeah. Which is crazy when you think yeah. about the fact that you've got clubs that have been running 15, 20, 30, 40 years yeah. up and down the country and you come in and within 12 months you've had more members than everyone. So yeah. what is it that you're doing that is allowing you to uh, engage with so many youngsters and getting so many kids involved with, with your clubs? I think first and foremost, it's um, the difference with us is, um, I guess, the, the, the breadth and scope of the region that we reach. You know, we are essentially a pan-London programme. And, you know, for us, in terms of the, the numbers on the memberships, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily rocket science. If you've got um, a team of coaches that are going out and coaching on a weekly basis, um, multiple sessions across London, you know, you're going to reach a lot of kids. Um, and the question is, OK, if you're reaching those kids, what are you doing with them? You know, what are you teaching them? You know, and so you obviously got uh, a basketball curriculum, curriculum in there, which is... Uh, you know, which all of our coaches work to. Um, and then once they're playing and they're learning the game, they're obviously going to want to compete. And so, you know, the competitive pathway for them after they've started playing is to go and play within our community basketball league. And so, you know, whichever coach is out there coaching that puts the team together, you know, those would be the players that inevitably come through and start playing, you know, in our community basketball league. And so, you know, I guess, and I've had this conversation with England basketball before, you know, it's probably a little bit misleading to say, you know, reach and teach as a club is the biggest club in the country because again I don't necessarily see us just as a club mm. you know in the same way um, perhaps Newcastle Eagles and, and their program um, and Leicester Riders and their programs in the community aren't necessarily just a club program you've got lots of different um, sub clubs underneath that umbrella um, and so you know in that realm I think that uh, and I've spoken to him about changing the wording on it, wording on it all mm -hmm. but um, you know what you've got is a series of multiple clubs underneath the Reach and Teach umbrella um, and again when we talk about clubs and participation numbers you know we actually reach a considerably wider number than those that we've actually got registered in the basketball at the moment but it's not necessary to register every single person you reach in because it might not necessarily all be playing you know in uh, organised competition yet mm -hmm. so you know, yeah, I think the, the whole thing about us being number one in such a short amount of time really was um, it wasn't we hit the ground and all of a sudden in 12 months we registered all these kids and they come from nowhere. No, it really was galvanising a lot of work that had been going on before we decided to start registering it. I mean, England basketball talked to me for a number of years about um, kind of using the Midnight Madness platform to, you know, start to prove that there are more people playing the game um, than they've currently been able to prove in Sport England. And, you know, because I wasn't enamoured at the time, really, with the England basketball offer, I didn't see the relevancy for, you know, um, um, you know guys and girls that maybe come and play at Midnight Madness who aren't already registered to a club. You know, why would I register them? You know, if you're just going to come and play at Midnight Madness and you don't want to play in the National League, why, why would you register? Mm -hmm. You know, you want to pay £12 for what? What are you getting back? So that was a big sticking point for us, I think, with England basketball for a number of years. But... Obviously, with the emergence of Reach and Teach and the, and the kind of infrastructure in the community basketball leagues, it made a lot of sense to say, OK, well, let's work together and make sure that um, the work that we're doing um, kind of gets reflected when you have this um, wider conversation with Sport England around participation numbers and actually what's happening on the ground. And so, you know, when we made that decision to start obviously working in partnership with England Basketball, you know, uh, the first year that we started registering people, yes, we went to number one on that list, but also the London region um, on the Active People Survey um, increased incrementally uh, to the, uh, the level that we were actually registering players to. Mm -hmm. So although London uh, registered the, you know, the, the largest increases on the Active People Survey nationwide, 
it was specifically because of the numbers recent teachers were bringing to the party. So that helped us a lot, you know, and it, uh, you know, it helped us obviously in our relationship with Sport England because they started to recognise some of the work that we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, to be fair, it wasn't uh, just about you know going to Sport England and saying, look what we're doing, give us you know this funding thing. It was really about us uh, moving step by step, and first of all, you know, um, proving what we're doing works. And I should say, you know without kind of going off on a tangent this whole genesis of what we do you know we didn't uh, get to a point where we were gifted anything by Sport England or England basketball or whoever you know, if you go back on it all you know the the connection between Reach and Teach and Midnight Madness is intrinsic and you know everybody will know that uh, Nike have strong have been long time supporters of Midnight Madness and uh, we used to enjoy a really really solid um, sponsorship deal with them you know um, to the value of six figures plus and uh, we actually made the conscious decision that year when we did Wembley and it was huge and you know everybody else was walking around patting themselves on their back and saying oh look isn't it great you know we pulled off Wembley Buster Rhymes you know 6,000 people at Wembley whatever it was blah 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 all this media um, and I was talking to the average person that came to Milan Manus this year and the Vox Bots were like, look, you know, I don't come out to any other basketball in a year. Only Midnight Madness is the only thing that I come out to. And it's great, Midnight Madness, great, 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 great. And in the early days, that might be flattering to a, you know, a young, rebellious um, uh, organizer. Think, yeah, I've got a great event. But as you start to think about it and look at the wider remit of developing the sport in this country, that's a, just a terrible situation to be in. Mm. The only time you're going to come out and um, be interested in basketball is when we put something on, well, basketball's not going to go very far. You know, we need to start looking at ways in which we can um, link in the popularity of what we do into the mainstream. You know, and look at working with um, you know the various different stakeholders in the game to ensure we can bring our little bit of uh, you know excitement to the game, if you like, and, and get it involved with what else is going on. And so we made the conscious decision. You know, this is I'm leading up to this key point. We made a conscious decision after we did the Wembley year take £100,000 of our sponsorship money and put it into that pilot programme I was telling you about and that's where the Jordan Court came from you know that was a £100,000 investment which was put into renovating the court partly uh, but again it was more cosmetic so that wasn't that much and also a post uh, development officer post which initially was uh, very well um, and you know essentially taking money that we had gone out and sourced ourselves through sponsorship um, and putting it into a program, you know, to be match fund, match funded, mm-hmm. uh, inevitably uh, by the mayor, um, Great London Authority, and the mayor's office, uh, to launch the London School of Basketball. So I raise that point just to say that look, you know, we couldn't have gotten to this position in the first place unless we had to see funding ourselves. You know, it wasn't about, you know, sporting, and it's been that way time and time and time again, year on year. We always, everything that we do, we always got to go to the party with match funding. You know, you can't get. Um, any level of decent funding nowadays without match funding and so you know Define, can you just define match funding so for people that funding, don't know yeah, yeah so match funding essentially means that look, if you see Sport England or any of these bodies come out and say there's arguments say £250,000 available for basketball or a million pounds available for basketball but it needs match funding if you want to go and apply for £50,000 um, you know match funding would require if it's a 50% match you would need to find £25,000 yourself. And if you find £25,000, they'll match it pound for pound. Um, so essentially, you've got to go out there and raise some money yourself, um, and then they'll match fund that to, to fund your program. And, so, and the reason why they do that is to ensure that you know, your program is viable, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you've obviously done the due diligence to go out there and 
uh, put some work in yourself to raise resources for it all because it, and the other part of it is you know money likes company you know if you're going to do any type of project you need to make sure that um, you know you've got partners around the table who can share the responsibility anytime there's one person or one organization running a huge project where you just leave yourself open to vulnerabilities yeah. and so match funding really is a partnership approach to you know funding um, programs and you know you, you can't get very far um, in the funding game without going out and sourcing uh, match funding let me, let me ask that because uh, you know looking at Midnight Madness and London School of Basketball and whatever else you've always had pretty decent roster responses obviously this year you've got 2k yeah. you regularly have Nike yeah. um, you do things with various other brands and stuff yeah. and that is something that so many clubs seem to really struggle with yeah. um, what is it that one you think is the kind of key for you or the secret if you want to call it that mm-hmm. for you to be able to get sponsorship mm-hmm. and two where do you see other clubs going wrong uh, with it uh, on a regular basis that's yeah. preventing them from being able to achieve sponsorship I think first and first and foremost um the number one thing I'd say is you've got to understand your product. All right, you've got if you want somebody to invest in what you do, you know you've got to be um, extremely convincing, you know, to them in terms of you know what you're talking about. You know, if you're going to go and ask somebody to invest any type of money into something, they've got to believe that they're dealing with an expert in their area. Otherwise, you know, you know if I can um, go online. And learn what you're telling me overnight and what do I need you for mm-hmm. you know they need to feel that, um, that whatever it is that you bring to the table there's got to be something unique about it or some type of specialized knowledge um, that uh, warrants their investment and I think what we've done obviously with Midnight Managers is a program that I created um, and all the various nuances of things that I've um, come up with um, so you know for what we do with Midnight Madness it was uh, you know, quite straightforward in terms of all right, it was a novel idea um, but then in terms of running it and the mechanics behind it and how the tournament, tournament should flow and how it should be marketed and you know, the core audience and uh, who else it should reach you know, those are all things that I guess would be classed as specialised knowledge mm-hmm. um, but in terms of what I think uh, the marketplace is doing at the moment um, the other thing, key thing on it is I would say is that you know, we need to start understanding uh, what basketball is outside of just a gym and people playing sport right? We need to start understanding from a marketing perspective and the potential of the sport um, in terms of how it can appeal to the commercial sector mm-hmm. and the media. Um, and I think that once you start to look at basketball in a bit more of a generic sense and pitching basketball against you know, other things that sponsors potentially could um, throw their money at um, and fine-tuning your product to ensure that you can compete with those things. And some of those things aren't even got anything to do with basketball. You know, once you get to that point, then um, you start to refine and, and tune up um, what should become um, your first kind of sponsorship pitch. And the kind of things, I mean, the generic stuff that people look at, you know, um, in this day and age, they want to know how big your audience is. You know, gone are the days where you can say, look, you know, I'm going to put your, your brand on a billboard and it's going to be great. Mm. You know, people want to know, want to know how many eyeballs are going to be on it, what type of engagement, you know, what's the social media doing, you know, mm-hmm. what's the media doing, what's the press doing. And you need to do the due diligence to kind of come up with um, real figures as well. Not don't put pie in the sky. One of the things is it's changed. Certainly over the 15 years I've been doing this, what's changed dramatically is, you know, you can't come in and tell somebody that you've got a database of X or you can get X amount of people to see your brand if you can't back it up. Mm-hmm. Because now they can find out a drop of a hat. 
you know so what you've got to do is, is better understand where you are and, and don't feel what I say to clubs is don't feel that you have to compete with you know GB Basketball or Midnight Madness or Hoops Fix or whatever or any of the strong brands that are out there in this space you know you've got to get in where you fit in and so from a, a club standpoint you know, Midnight Madness might talk to a national sponsor or even now here we're in St. Kitts, an international sponsor, right? This is going to have no relevance to a local club in Derby, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What you want to do is find out locally who your audience um, um, really appeals to in terms of local businesses, local media outlets and so on and so forth and go after that market. And it might mean, well, actually, I saw Midnight Madness, you've got a deal for 50 grand, I want 50 grand. Actually, our, our bills are much bigger than yours, so you don't need 50 grand to yeah. first thing. But then secondly, you know, it might be that you go about it in a different way. If we pitch, you know, NBA 2K or, or Nike or whoever it is, and we're going for something bigger, it's because the remit's going to be a lot bigger. Whereas what you might be going for is that instead of going after one big sponsor, and which I actually believe is the way for all of us now, they'll go after a number of smaller ones. Mm. They'll get 250 pounds here. 250 there, 250 there, all of a sudden that's £1,000 I've got kits and um, some coaching for the season or my transport's covered for the season mm. and break it up systematically and then the main thing around sponsorship, the number one thing is, you know, I actually think if you put the work in, actually finding sponsorship or finding support whether it be in-kind or otherwise, isn't the hard thing. I think the hard thing is making sure that you ensure sponsors get massive value back from mm. what you do you know under promise and over deliver mm. don't go in there and promise them the world mm. and then you know uh, one year in well you didn't do half of what you said you're going to do because they'll be gone not just from you but potentially from the sport so i just encourage everybody that does go out there and has some success in the sponsorship game make sure you deliver on those sponsorships and over deliver on them so they want to get involved in basketball even further because you know i've always said this you know my whole stake in the game is you know, us to all work together so we can create a much bigger piece, you know, a much bigger pie, so to speak, you know, and uh, we'll all get a piece. You know, it's not just about, um, you know, uh, us saying, okay, how big can we can make this for us? No, if we're going to be successful, you know, we're all on the same team from mm -hmm. a basketball standpoint and we need stronger events, we need stronger clubs, we need stronger professional leagues, we need stronger uh, grassroots infrastructure, we need stronger governance, but we all need to work together because if our governance is no good, I can't go and speak to a Coca-Cola or whatever and say, get involved in basketball overall, mm. you know, and, and sure, there might be some piece of that sponsorship deal for Midnight Madness, but there's also going to be something for Hoops Fix as the media channel. Yeah. There's going to be something for the governance for in terms of, you know, what they do with the national programs. But if any of us are letting down the other, now all of a sudden, you know what, uh, the bigger sponsors that are out there mm -hmm. aren't going to want to get involved. I mean, I've been in so many conversations, Sam, where, you know, there's been some serious money around the table um, and I've had to spend, you know, such a long time trying to convince them that, you know, basketball isn't fragmented. Yeah. You know, there really is positive and there's yeah. so much potential. And, you know, if you've got to go into a conversation trying to convince them um, of that as a sport, mm. you know, it's our fault. Yeah. You know? And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but the problems of a sport at the moment, you know, I go on record as saying it, it's our fault. We can't complain, you know, at, uh, you know and again, this might be controversial too, but... You know, I, I don't want to see money cut from basketball, you know, but can I fault UK sport in terms of their criteria as it currently stands? No, and it's the same thing from a sponsorship standpoint. You know, we can't sit there thinking, oh, we want NBA money. We don't have an NBA product. Yeah. You know, we can't sit there saying we want, you know, the type of money that goes into, you know, we get this all the time. Look at netball, you know, look at netball, look how much money they're getting. You know, basketball's more popular than netball, but netball have a much, uh, far more professional presentation than we do. Yeah. You know, and, and until we 
um, get our sport from top to tail in better shape, you know, we're going to be chasing our tails. And I really think that we, uh, from a sponsorship standpoint, it's the same thing. From a funding standpoint, it's the same thing. You know, the money that we currently get as a sport is minuscule to what we could get collectively if we started to work together, um, join together, stop having these silly little um, uh, um, uh, um, bickering um, arguments in public on social media whatever it may be it, it's just counterproductive yeah it's, it's counterproductive. like you always say everyone's fighting over crumbs crumbs when instead rather than let's work together and then there's a massive pie which everyone can have a slice of you know absolutely. I always think the same thing with media in the sense that I think when I first started I was a little bit protective and it's like oh the website's coming along got competition yeah. then actually it's like well the more media outlets there are the better it is for the sport absolutely. the more the sport grows the more I stand to benefit you know absolutely. I think everyone needs to start looking at it like that you know it changes everything because you um, know that the, the key thing on that as well this all makes sense from you from a media standpoint but it also should make sense to clubs and leagues and so on and so forth is that look you know rather than looking at the the first piece of uh, food so to speak that comes down the table and seeing oh Sam just got blah 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 from so and so Sam let me get some let me get some yeah. you should be thinking so right actually hold on a second if Sam just brought in so and so there are going to be about a hundred other competitors that also want to get into the marketplace too yeah. now I just need to go out there and pitch them yeah. you know for every you know, for every Nike, there's an Adidas, yeah. right? For every Coca-Cola, there's a Pepsi, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. And and the fact you can go to the table with more brands already involved absolutely. makes it easier it to makes, sell. And it makes the game look so much stronger, yeah. you know. So, you know, my mindset is that we should be working together to solidify and, and help the sport of basketball rather than fragmenting it further with, um, you know, airing, you know, some of the grievances, which, you know, again, they, they, they are valid. I'm not discrediting some of the grievances that are out there, but... You know, I just think that we as a sport aren't helping ourselves in terms of, um, you know, how we work at the moment in terms of um, uniting, how we work at the moment in terms of uh, everybody worrying about what everybody else has got, you know, and how we help each other. You know, that, that's a real, a real thing for me at the moment. But uh, again, I'm not, uh, my mindset is, Sam, as you probably know, um, I'm open to speaking with anybody that's like-minded and wants to get things done. But at the same time, um, I can't afford to, to sit on my hands and wait, you know. I've always had a, a mindset that, look, you know what? If it's not being done, let's just go do it. Mm. Let's go do it. And sometimes it's worked for us and sometimes against us. But, you know, the bottom line is, you know, if you're, if you're active and you're getting things done, you're always moving forward. And so, you know, one way or another, you know, we want to be part of this solution and we feel that we are going to be. So. What's your relationship like, like uh, with the governing body? I mean, are they, are they talking to you regularly? Are they... Are they coming to you and asking how it how you how it is that you're doing what you're doing with Reach and Teach and Midnight Madness? Well, you know, the governing body is an interesting one. I mean, um, our our strongest link initially to the governing body was from the the London regional manager Steve Alexander, right? And for years he was telling us, look, you've got to work within the, you know the matrix, so to speak. You've got to make sure that you you, you know you're bringing Midnight Madness to the table because you know you won't survive independently, mm-hmm. right? and it took a long time for me to see what he was saying and you know what to be fair at this point I don't necessarily fully agree with that statement alright because you know I don't necessarily think we have to have the governing body at the table but you know in line with what I just said we want to work with the governing body um, but I think everybody around the table governing body included going forward you know needs to make sure um, they're bringing something to the table of worth there's no sense in going into partnership with somebody. It's not a partnership, Sam. If you go into something with somebody and you're bringing all the equity mm. and they're bringing nothing but an empty plate. I'm mm-hmm. not saying the governing body currently are doing that, but you know, any partnerships that are out there, not just for us, but for anybody, you know, 
two partners come together because they're both adding something to create a greater whole. And I think the, the governing body for me in the past, uh, you know, and again, all of this administration has moved on now, so I'll yeah. talk to you about it. And, uh, you know, we, uh, when we were probably at our media peak with Midnight Madness around the mid 2000s, going into 2006, seven, around that time, you know, we had a huge database, you know, of people that had come to the get, come to Midnight Madness or, you know, played at Midnight Madness or connected with the brand in some way online. You know, it was huge, you know, and we had been aware that the governing body at that time was struggling for numbers, you know, and then I didn't realize how the whole funding process actually worked. And I didn't realize then that actually if the, if the governing body can go out and, and prove that we've got, you know, 60, 70, 80, you know, um, I think at its peak is about 90,000 people that are not necessarily playing, but here's the key thing for me, the people that are engaging with our brand one communication away from becoming EB members. Yeah. It would be, right, now I'm going to come to coaching, now I want to come to the game, whatever it might be, right? I was like, look, we went to the governing body back in that time and we said, look, surely we should have some kind of partnership because, you know, um, for us it works because it, it kind of uh, uh, gives some kind of reputability, if you like, you know, and credence to what we're doing is being recognised by the federations and we start to travel internationally, so that was useful for us. Um, but from a, a local standpoint, it was really about saying, look, if we've got all these people playing basketball, let's get them onto your database. What can we do? Let's get a partnership in place. And I was told back then, because we were sponsored by Nike, um, and people, you know, Nike will give you £50,000, you know, in terms of sponsorship, and it might be in kind or whatever, and people will assume you're getting £5 million. Yeah. You know, people say, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I know Narmo's driving an Aston Martin. He's going around the country in a helicopter. I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, the, the thing is, it's because of perception. Right? Yeah. And so the governing body at the time were like, well, look, how much are you and Nike going to pay us for a partnership? And I was like, look, you know, Nike don't want me to be in this conversation with you at the time. They were like, look, you know, the governing body isn't going to, you know, that's not really where we want to sit at the time. Yeah. You know, that's not part of where we are. We want to be this rebellious, you know, brand. You know, we're kind of, Nike always been on the edge, you know, and it's cutting edge and they do great at what they do. But the governing body was compromising their brand quite considerably to try and instill a conversation with them. So I said, I'm doing this for my own volition. And then when they started talking about, look, you know, how much we're going to pay them, I realized we were having the wrong conversation. So we just kind of, you know, mm -hmm. got about doing our own thing. It was only when we came back to the table many years later um, with the London School of Basketball and some of the efforts that Steve did with the Summer Events Committee that we, we really kind of started to have any kind of relationship with them. And at the moment, um, you know, we are um, in talks um, with uh, the directors at England Basketball, the new CEO, or the relatively new CEO, um, Hugh Morgan, um, about what a new partnership may look like between our organisations because you know, for me it doesn't make sense for us um, to be working outside that remit and certainly with Sport England at the table you know, they want to see us uh, as best as possible you know, work with the governing body um, and use our programmes to help support what the governing body is doing also so you know, we, we remain in conversation and I'm hoping you know, in this final part of the going into the last quarter of 2014 know to kind of consummate what that partnership looks like going into 2015 but you know as I said everybody around the table has to bring something you know don't come to the table come come to the party you know without your bottle you know, mm -hmm. to bring a party how have you personally found Hugh um, you know I haven't had that much interaction just yet you know um, and again um, I uh, when I saw the appointment I, I thought that uh, looking at the resume um, you know, it was a positive step because basketball absolutely needs commercial 
um, knowledge and input to help grow that side of, of the game. Um, from what I've seen thus far, you know, I obviously, and I'm, again, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what happens next. But you know, I have got a raised eyebrow, and as much as you know, I think that what's happened so far is okay. The commercial side apparently is now in place in terms of the knowledge base, but it almost feels to the detriment of the development end, as opposed to having a mixed mm-hmm. match uh, of both. And um, you know, I've obviously seen all of the development staff being let go, and I think that was. Uh, you know, in my opinion, though not necessarily the uh, the best move, but again, maybe they've got plans for the development that we don't know anything about yet. And I think I'm one of the many that are out there that are waiting with bated breath to see what next. I've seen the rebrand, mm-hmm. you know, which is a positive move in the right direction. You like the rebrand, Basketball England? Um, BE now, no more EB. I think I think BE is absolutely an improvement on um, EB. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it means more, you know. Um, in terms of the design and everything else, you know. Looks a bit Canadian. You know what? Two lines, no, none does, or three it, lines. It does look like a Canadian flag. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know, and, and again, but the same thing. I was, the same thing for me is I, I try to be uh, positive until you give me a reason not to be. Yeah. Right? And, and I think that it's good that there's been a rebrand. It's a positive step in the right direction. Agree. I, I think that Hugh's got a, a massive task in front of him, and I don't um, envy him or envy that um, for him. And I think that um, that the um, rebranding. And kind of shaping the game, if you like, um, in this new face, you know, I would have done the same thing. You know, I just think that the, the follow-up is going to be, right, you know, it's almost like a layup step. That was your first step, but are you going to be able to finish the job? Yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. The, the rebrand was one thing, but there's an awful lot of work to do around that. And hopefully the rebrand's part of bringing in some more commercial partners and a new investment. And, um, you know, we've all got hopes and aspirations for what the governing body could do, yeah. perhaps should do. And hopefully Hugh is uh, is the guy to lead that forward. So, you know, it's too early for me to say in terms of, uh, you know, do I agree with what he is or isn't doing? Because I'm not too sure at this point what that agenda is. But yeah. hopefully in subsequent talks, we'll be able to sit down and work out what that is. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to be a part of that mix. Going from the, the Federation onto the Professional League. Yeah. Obviously, there's a little time with London Lions at the moment, right? Is it, You know, talk a little bit about... What, what is the deal with you and London Lions, Regent Siege London Lions, and, and uh, kind of how do you feel about the BBL at the moment? Um, I think the, the BBL for me is, I mean, when you've been in the game as long as I have, you realise that, you know, there isn't an NBA coming through the door anytime soon, all right? Well, why do you think that is just to digress for a second? Why, yeah, what, a lot yeah. of people say to me, you know, you've got the NBA, the NBA Europe's head office in London, yeah. on the ground, you know, there isn't a heavy NBA presence anywhere, really, aside from when the games come in, yeah. you know, for the exhibition game once a sure. year or whatever. Sure. Um, you know, have you, have you had conversations with the NBA? Yeah, I have had multiple conversations with the NBA. I mean, we partnered with the NBA on a couple of things um, a few years back. And, you know, I think that the NBA being um, on the ground potentially is, is a positive thing. But I also think that the local market, namely the BBL and all of us here, also have to be conscious of um, you know what that may mean you know and so to put that crudely you know I think the NBA coming into if you look at uh, Spain or Turkey or Greece when the NBA goes into those regions they do it you know in partnership with Mm -hmm. because they realise that the passionate fan base and the market is around local basketball Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the UK that's not necessarily the case the NBA 
rules. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Straight off the bat, it's crazy. You know, straight off the bat, they they just they, you know the people will have a much higher respect level for the NBA than they do British basketball product. Mm-hmm. And and I think that um, what I'd like to see um, is a strengthening of the professional game here. So the NBA does need to work in partnership with the local products because the NBA brings massive value. You know, it's, it's got but do you, th- do you think that thing is that they're just like it's in, a, it's in a place where we can't be associated with that right now? I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I think that the NBA want to do work um, potentially with the BBL and you know uh, um, uh, whatever the rendition of professional basketball in this country would be but you know it's like uh, it goes back to that partnership thing I said before you know, you can't come to the table empty-handed. Yeah. You know, and, and you know how big is the BBL market right now? Mm. Right. And so, if it means that the NBA is going to be carrying or investing in the BBL to get it up to a point, you know, if I'm the NBA, I've really got to think about that. Like, mm. Hold on a second. Why would I invest in the BBL or the professional game here if I can still get market traction in in Britain, still mm. do our events, mm-hmm. still fill it out, and when we're ready, potentially do a London franchise? You know, without having to engage and spend money and developing a local product, and that might sound a bit um, uh, brutal, and certainly for um, a lot of the basketball lifers like myself, you know, might not be what we want to hear. But then it goes back to what we said at the top of the show, Sam. We've got to get our house in order before we can start doing business mm. with other people. You know, and I think the NBA are definitely one of those people that would love to see us do that. But you know, we can't go around. You know, I, I'm really, you know, again, hopefully it doesn't sound controversial, but you know, I'm just not of the mindset that we as a sport. And all the different organisations within it should be cup in hand to anybody. You know what we've got to do is consolidate the strength of what our market is. You know, and even if it means that our oh, guess what, you know, the active people survey was wrong or, or, or the TGI figures were wrong. There's not 1.1. There's not this and that. Whatever that actual figure is, let's use that as a starting point and grow out. Mm. You know, let's get you know, let's find out how many people really are going to come to you know a Midnight Madness Finals or a Hoops Fix um, All-Star Classic or mm. a BBL Finals whatever if we all work together let's mm. find out what those numbers really are because if we can consolidate that and get a body of work behind it so actually look you know what we've been selling out the you know the copper box consi- consistently now for two seasons mm. ticket, uh, season ticket sales surpassed demand now we need to move up to the O2 now all of a sudden you've got a very very intriguing case because you're in London and London is a city that the NBA and the EuroLeague and the world as a whole yeah. want yeah. they might not want the basketball product yeah. but they want the city yeah. you know and that they're in dovetails into our relationship with the London Lions yeah, um, yeah talk know, to me about that let's go into that the London Lions just for the record um, you know uh, and just to set the record straight on it all <laughs> um, we um, and I say we Reach and Teach have been working with GLL now for GLL who are um Greenwich Leisure Limited, though they don't like to go by that anymore, they like to go by the words better, um, who essentially are the largest facility management company in um, southern England, southeastern England. Um, They manage and have the contracts for all of the major basketball facilities in Mm -hmm. London, pretty much. Crystal Palace, Copper Box, Brixton, Copper Box, anywhere where you can do an event, really. They've got the contracts for... And um, we are the grassroots basketball providers from a reach and tee standpoint. It just means simply that we design their under-12s programs and their sports courses and their drop-in sessions. Um, and we provide them the coaches to facilitate them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're currently active in about 12 different centres across London. Uh, with a plan to grow that out to 16 and then 24 um, over the next 12, 18 months. 
Um, and so for us, we already had a relationship in place with them. And the London School of Basketball um, works off of those sessions as well. So the kids that are engaged at the GLO sessions then um, integrate into um, um, LSB clubs, which then go and play in our CBL, which also takes place in GLO centres. So that's kind of a, a quick synopsis of where our relationship yep. is with them. They contacted us um, um, going back into before we did the 2012 Olympics and we're like, look, you know, they've gotten the contract for the copper box and um, certainly part of their remit is to put on, you know, there's this misnomer that they had to have BBL basketball in there. They didn't. What they actually needed to do um, as part of their contract um, with LLDC, which is the London Legacy Development Corporation, who essentially, you might as well say, own the copper box in the Olympic Park. Mm-hmm. Um, they, their contract stipulated that they had to have um, elite level basketball as a legacy piece at the copper box for a minimum of six to eight times per year. Now, obviously, the the best case scenario would be there'd be a professional team playing there. Mm-hmm. You know? And so they asked me at the time, look, you know, they had actually had plans prior and had been speaking to on and off to the East London Royals. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we know that the East London Royals didn't, Get, get quite get um, across the line and so you know they came to me and said look you know are you aware of any other opportunities knowing not just what we do with them on a grassroots level but knowing that um, you know, well networked with the basketball fraternity mm-hmm. and it just so happened that that same summer every year we do um, this is going to the 2012 summer every year we do Midnight Madness um, Vince from the London Lions and a couple of the other coaches always come down to the finals to scout players mm-hmm. um, which I should say Know, for all the BBL clubs out there, I don't know why you're not coming down to the finals <laughs> because we get all of the players that you're trying to recruit, whether it be for your BBL um, teams or your university academies. Um, but anyway, that's another side. Of yeah. but so he comes down to he comes down to the Midnight Madness finals and he's like, "Look, you know what's happening in London this summer?" Um, because he's just um, he's had to move out of Milton Keynes, mm-hmm. and um, I said, "Okay, well, you know, if." situation had been different you know perhaps we were further along the line of where we are as an organization our response to GLO at the time might be we're actually you know let's take a, a stake in this ourselves but at the time as it was it was uh, had everything had to ha- everything had to happen very quickly and it was about putting the pieces together and the pieces were quite clear Vince had a BBL franchise they wanted a BBL franchise Vince was looking to relocate either if there was an opportunity in London uh, London, or at the time I think he was talking about uh, potentially Liverpool mm-hmm. um, so I convened the meeting between GLL and Vince and um, the BBL and the only way um, everyone said it could happen was if uh, Reach and Teach became the official kind of grassroots leg to the Lions mm-hmm. because obviously we had Pan London programme and we looked yeah. at all the GLL centres and so what came out and again I, I, I'm um, chopping up a, a big part of the story here yeah. for, for time's sake but what came out of that whole scenario was essentially a three-way partnership between recent teachers London Lions and GLL um, around basketball and you know uh, just to put it out there crystal clear the region teach don't own any part of the London franchise you know we are essentially the grassroots partner for it all and so essentially it should mean that all the grassroots activity um, that the London Lions are involved in we should uh, be involved in as well in some mm-hmm. capacity or know about it or whatever it might be we'll be running it ourselves um, and, and they're supposed to provide the, you know, the top end. And again, in terms of attracting new money into basketball in London and new opportunities into London, it's very hard if all you have is potentially just a grassroots program. It's not that sexy, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately. You can get some CSR interest, yeah. but certainly 
the idea was to say, right, if we can get London Lions and the Copper Box packed and you know, get a lot of our grassroots uh, programs to come and support the Lions, you know, you, got, uh, you almost got a patch arena as it is, all right? And uh, if they do a good job of running their end of the business, you know, certainly GLL providing, you know, what I'd like to say is probably the best facility for basketball in the country at the moment from a BBL standpoint. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's up to the Lions now put on a successful product on the floor. Mm-hmm. And so our, our partnership really is about supporting the Lions um, in facilitating that. And we have a three-way partnership, as said, between the GLL, ourselves and the Lions in doing that. Um, and, and, you know, obviously we try to help as much as we can where we can, you know, with reason. Um, but the, in essence, you know, the partnership is around trying to make London basketball stronger, very much in support of what we said at the beginning of the conversation, Sam, of, you know, my belief is we all got to work together to make a bigger cake, yeah. you know, and so this is our attempt to doing that tangibly, you know, and... Um, what do you think of the BBL product at the moment? I think it needs work, you know. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit biased because we're, we pull off Midnight Madness, you know, and uh, we do things that other people don't do, and sometimes we do things almost as a, a tip the hat to the BBL to say, take a look at that, why don't you try it, you know. You know, I mean, this year what a live marching bands like you know? <laughs> always try to push the envelope a little bit in terms of entertainment but uh, um, I think the BBL you know be fair I think that um, Andy uh, Webb at the BBL is doing a, a much 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 better job than the previous renditions of years ago I think it is improving um, I think the uh, there's still quite ways to go in terms of uh, the marketing and PR but it is a lot better um, and, and I think that what we have to understand is, you know, we've seen it with our own organisation, I'm sure you have as well, Sam, you know, we all, with the best laid intentions, nothing happens overnight. Um, but, you know, the, the key thing on it all is that does need to be some tangible improvements year on year to kind of keep the momentum moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it, my, my biggest criticisms of the BBL at the moment, um, I think the standard could improve. You know, uh, I think that, uh, I know obviously finance dictates a lot, uh, but we need to be a bit more creative in terms of how we roll out uh, professional products in terms of, all right, we might not be able to run it all from sponsorship, for example. Let's look at these different models that Worcester are employing, new cars are employing for quite a while, um, and try and take the best, some of the best bits of everything and kind of make a greater, a greater hold, if you like. But uh, the BBL for me is, is very, very important because we've got to make sure that the, the top end product, I mean, I've seen it with the London Lions. It's like, you know, we've been working in London for a long time. We've been working in London for a very long time. And um, London Lions come along and they're able to engage conversations that we couldn't get into just because they think, oh, it's the Razzmatazz of, yeah. of all-star basketball. You know, and so, you know, I, I think the BBL's got a very, very important part to play, but it's become a recurring theme in this conversation. You know, um, they need to be made accountable, as we all do, to making sure that our products that we're putting out there is right and ready for investment. You know, and, and I think the BBL um, is moving forward, but I think to be fair, still got a bit of work to do, top to tail. I mean, there's such a big disparity in the BBL at the moment, and I think that's its biggest thing. I think um, on the positives, if you took the top eight clubs, okay, um, I think you'd have a much closer version of what could be sold into bigger money, right? But uh, through sake of uh, trying to be, you know, maybe more inclusive, you know, and being scared of um, certain regions being left out, whatever it may be, you know, we, and I say we as basketball, we probably have clubs in the BBL at the moment that shouldn't be in the BBL. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not um, for me, you or I to say who should or shouldn't be in the BBL, but 
there should be a standard. Yeah. Right? There should be a standard of play. There should be a standard of off-court professionalism. You know, when somebody comes to professional basketball in Britain, it should mean something. You know, and there should be a consistency. Not everybody can play in the copper box. We understand that. Um, but the experience, like for example, you look at Leicester. Okay, Leicester have been playing in, um, you know, a challenging facility. Let's, let's, let's say that a challenging facility for 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 a while now. However, the professionalism around what they do, yep. top of the notch, yep. top notch. Russ has done a great job, yeah, and you know the bottom line is that's what I'm talking about. You might not necessarily have the facility you want yet, yeah. but because of the professional job he's done with yeah. what he's had, yeah. he's now going to get a facility, yeah, yeah. and that's how it works. And I think that's the approach all clubs should be taking. We, we, we there's a, there should be a marked difference between an EBL club and a professional BBL club. Yeah. And once we establish that difference and what it actually means to be a professional basketball club. From top to tail, and you know you go through this, Sam, and we talk about it, you know, from a media and a PR standpoint, which is an absolutely underrated um, and shockingly um, missing element, I think, to the BBL if you go top to tail with clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you can't go to any club and get, you know, game-by-game press release, you know, um, all right, we've got fever stats live, but, you know, the level of professionalism, if you take a trip across the water and look at what you get when you go to France or any other countries in Europe that have decent professional leagues it's just in a different mm. realm and, and I think there are, this isn't even budget related Sam you know there are things that can be done at very little to no cost yeah, 100% um, that can increase the professionalism and the, um, the perception of our league from external eyes and they're the steps that we need to be taking. At the end of the day, perception is everything. Sometimes you can just dress things up and it and it will just make all the difference, even though the reality isn't Absolutely. isn't quite that great. I, I mean, Sam, you know, and I have spoken about this before, but I actually think that, you know, and again, it's not to make a pitch out there for hoops fix, but you know, those that have gone into the marketplace and proven that they can do something, you know, why aren't you speaking to those people to consult in to help strengthen the whole? Yeah. You know, you know, you and I have spoken about that, and you know, at the end of the day. I think that um, if we're all working together and pooling our resources in terms of whether it be a think tank, you know, a resource tank or whatever it may be to strengthen our game, those are things that are very, very little below cost. And I think there are a lot of us out here that want to give our time and expertise if it's going to be used in the right way to strengthen the game so the overall product's better. Because if the BBL's stronger, Hoops Fix is stronger. Yeah. If the BBL's stronger, Midnight Madness is going to be stronger. So would the grassroots. Yeah. And so, you know, Organisations like ours and yours would absolutely commit to helping if it was done the right way. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, you're probably like me. We're still waiting for that, that phone call. <laughs> you know. So, you know, again, um, I'm hopeful for the future of the BBL. But again, tangible steps need to be made. You know, not just with the the London Lions and the Copper Boxes of the world, but you know, there needs to be more Leicester Riders type models mm-hmm. uh, being employed out there for the league to get stronger. Because as a byproduct to that, more resource will come in. More resource will drive the quality of the game on the court because you know, give or take, because there are still some you know, horrendous decisions around personnel <laughs> up and down the league. But, you know, give or take, if there's more money in the league, you'll be able to go and attract um, a better product on the floor. And so when you and I come to the game as fans, we're actually seeing some good basketball as opposed to, you know, unstructured, you know, as we guys call it, Mickey Mouse basketball. Yeah. You know, so, you know, BBL, as I said, I think it's hugely important. Um, and we need the BBL to be successful in order for our game to be successful. Because if we have... Um, the NBA and all other potential investors in our game and not just financial investors but also media and so on and so forth with no interest because the product's not good you know we need to improve the product and uh, the BBL is a key part of that it's not the only part but it's a key part on the 
the topic of funding mm-hmm. obviously Sporting then announced that you were going to get a nice little hefty sum yeah. uh, of funding earlier this year yeah. uh, first of all what was your initial reaction when you found out you were going to get what was it just short of half a million it's £418,000 yeah 418, casual £418,000 it's £418,000 I mean I think first and foremost you know what needs to be said is um, while we are obviously appreciative of Sporting England of making that decision um you don't get to the point of being able to uh, get that funding without it almost seeming like, well, it's not that much money. And what I mean by that is the scale and operation of what you do in terms of staffing and reach and expenditure almost makes it seem like a moot point because, you know, every single penny of it is spent before you obviously get it. Um, and what it, all it does essentially is allow you to uh, facilitate what you already do and maybe grow out what you already do and do it in more regions. Um, and so, you know, here's the thing. For us, obviously, we're absolutely very uh, pleased to get it. But, you know, we also need to put it into perspective. You know, we've been doing this a very long time. And, and to be specific, the sport from Sport England is around the growth and expansion of the London School of Basketball and also to bring back, as we've just seen this summer, uh, Midnight Madness. And, you know, uh, use Midnight Madness as a an engager and the model we've just spoken about and then funnel everybody through reach and teach uh, and sorry in the LSB to ensure that people are continuing to play mm-hmm. and you know what we're looking to do is Sport England if all goes well is to scale the model to, to more regions obviously working in partnership with uh, potentially the BBL Foundation and, uh, and the NGB um, and again we'll see where that goes but that leads me nicely into this thing about context you know £418,000 for a proven program that um you know, delivered successfully on eight boroughs for the London Mayor's Office and then got granted um, eight more boroughs to expand, expand the LSB. Um, you know, it's already engaged 5,000 people, 5,000 young people in playing basketball, you know, and, you know, essentially our funding was to expand, extend out the London School of Basketball to 32 boroughs. So we're doing Pan London now. It's a Pan London program. Um, and obviously, as I said before, bringing back Midnight Mad, it's both programs that are proven, you know, tangible proof if you asked me for them we've got you know all the statistics and the files around each of those programs mm-hmm. stretching back three to five years mm-hmm. right and in that case even longer four hundred eighteen thousand pounds but then conversely you have other programs out there that got considerably more than we did you know but don't necessarily have the um the radar time type of kind of Resume. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Haven't done the work. Yeah, yeah well, you know, it's a, it's a program, you know, the, the other funded programs are all, um, at this point, you know, subjective as opposed to objective. It sounds like, you know, this is a good idea, Yeah. you know, but, you know, we still Not need pretty. to see tangible yeah. how, how, how does that fund? How does that funding work with, uh, with Sport England? Like, because obviously they... They originally have always funded the governing body, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, is that did the governing body apply for that? And what then did you then apply for that? Like how so how did you end up getting it? We we didn't get the again the money that we received and the money that the BBL Foundation received and yeah. the NGB received all different pots of money. All right. We um, in simple terms, um, our fundings come from almost like a um, a sports entrepreneurial. Uh, kind of pot of money if you like from Sport England in terms of them taking a mixed economy approach to funding sport that will become self-sustainable and you know we haven't gone into the we haven't been funded from um, quote-unquote England basketball 
post-sport money, um, we worked with a different department of Sport England to get the funding that we got. However, because we are being funded from the central body, yeah. we are now all sitting alongside each other, uh, working together or, or looking to work together. Um, Sport England funded partners, which is ourselves, the NGB and their satellite club scheme. Um, you've got uh, the Real Foundation and their program. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, street games who are getting, you know... They get a lot of money, they, right? They get, uh, they get more than all of us put together, to be fair. Really? Yeah, I mean... You know, who runs street games? Um, street games overall is run by a lady called Jane Ashworth. She's the head of it all, but she's obviously got... Um, and she uh, just set it up like you set up Reach and Teach? Many, many years ago, Jane set up street games with the doorstep sport um, philosophy. Um, and it wasn't obviously just basketball, it was multi-sport. Yeah. Um, trying to bring sports closer to the community. And, you know, essentially, Sam, what you'll see when you look through all of these programs is, in my opinion, you know, everybody's trying to do similar things. Yeah. You know, uh, um, get more people playing sport, get more basically. Get people playing sport. Engaging and, and, youngsters. You know, the, the main thing is for me, I think that the proof of it all is going to be in how strong their infrastructures are underneath it all. Because if it's just about getting kids down to a session, running a coaching session and getting some monitoring figures, and then when the funding runs out, that session stops, well, you haven't achieved anything. Mm. You demotivate them. What you need to be doing is making sure that you're investing in the infrastructure to allow the kids that are playing to continue to be part of a sustainable club mm -hmm. and upskilling that club with the tools that it needs to become more self-sustainable. So what does that actually mean? What does that self-sustainability thing mean? Ultimately, from our standpoint, and again, I can't speak on the other programs, mm -hmm. what it means is when we set up a club, it can't just be a coach running that club. We've got to build up the infrastructure around them. So we need to implement coach education. So we've always got coaches coming through, not just to coach the club in question, but what we're working on is this um, social enterprise model where if we can, argument's sake, develop um, you know, five or six, maybe ten coaches, ideally it would be fantastic if we had ten, but say we develop five coaches from a local club, mm -hmm. then we show them how that local club can use those coaches to go out into the community, to the schools and so on and so forth, and set up a coaching business. Um, and then if we're able to do that, then that club becomes self-sustainable in terms of the money they can generate from the local community mm -hmm. to keep their club going. And argument say, you know, I'm sure many of the people listening to this from a club standpoint do this at the moment, but for those that aren't doing it, um, you know, you'll go in and argument say you'll charge £25 an hour to a school for a coach, a qualified mm -hmm. coach to come and teach um, in your school or extra curricular hours after school or whatever it may be. And from that £25 an hour, the coach will probably get £15 an hour and £10 will go back to the club. Mm -hmm. And if you obviously do economies of scale and all of a sudden you've got you know, 100 hours per week, then all of a sudden that's £1,000 per week your club is getting mm -hmm. to become self-sustainable. So we show clubs how to do that and then run that model. But then also in addition to that, um, we run club development workshops which are helping clubs build um, develop constitutions mm -hmm. um, you know teaching local people how to uh, administer local clubs and a lot of this stuff isn't difficult to you or I mm -hmm. but certainly a lot of the communities you reach is you know night and day mm -hmm. how to apply for local grants mm -hmm. up to £5,000 we'll take you through a grant funding workshop how to fill it out what they're asking you how to take the reach that you're, you're currently um, getting in terms of how many kids that you reach in your coaching programs and transition that into funding because of the amount of people that you reach, how many community hours you're delivering and so on and so forth. We take you through all of that through our program and we take you through all of that to ensure that your club year on year can meet its bills. So you can pay your coaches, you can pay for your core hire, mm -hmm. you know, you can get your kit, you can get your transportation if needed 
And from our standpoint, you know, um, you can come and play in our CBL. No, the, the, the proof of the pudding for us ultimately is going to have a really vibrant, successful CBL. If our community basketball league works, then grassroots is going to be in good shape because the agenda for the CBL is um, if you go for this program that uh, the LSB employs, um, you'd like to hope that the more successful programs um, will have some sustainability built into them in terms of the finances that we've just spoken about, you know, some qualified coaches, um, you know, the kits and so on and so forth, and then enough court time per week with decent coaches to ensure that the product that they put on the floor in terms of the team itself is competitive. Mm. And so if the CBL is an absolute grassroots league, the teams that come out of the CBL should then be well-primed to be successful at a national league level. And what we think the CBL will do is ultimately strengthen the national league. It means that, you know, we hope one day, gone will be the days where you have, you know, um, a team blow out a team 122 to, to 15 or whatever to four, to four. That's exactly yeah. that's, got, that's got to stop you know yeah, yeah. it's not it's demotivating to players it's not helping anybody it's not helping our game if that team that scored four had come through the CBL by the time they play that team they'd be far better equipped on the court and off the court to be competitive so obviously the, the focus with London School of Basketball obviously is on participation yeah. and getting them first playing basketball yeah. what is so what let's just let's just say that you know a kid starts playing and he's incredibly talented mm-hmm. and you've noticed how good he is whatever then, then what happens is there a system and then you feed him into a national league club or how, how does it work so at the moment um, that pathway for us is if a kid comes to a, an LSB club and they're really really talented um, that was the, the basis of this, uh, this next level thing we're doing right? the next level program that we're doing really is about having um, three at the moment we're working on three um, uh, camps if you like camp stroke clinics per year mm-hmm. where the more talented kids we're seeing through um, the LSB can come and get a higher level of coaching uh, but at the same time be assessed to see you know, how good they are and then local to where they're based uh, bridge that gap between them potentially I guess the National League programme um, or invite the National League coaches along to the next level programme so they can see well who are the best players in London at the moment that are yeah. coming out you know? because the thing is we could say to everyone oh well we do that Midnight Madness but Midnight Madness happens once in the yeah, summer yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly it's you know we have a capacity issue as you know at Midnight Madness in London you know, you do a, a midnight match in London, and you're probably going to get you know, two or three games, and that's it. Yeah. You know, whereas there's not necessarily a quality opportunity to find out who's who, unless you're really, really good and, and win your way through. So, yeah. you know, the next level program is about giving us more of a, a qualitative look at the best players that are coming through the LSB, um, and really helping assess what their next best option is. And for some of them, it might be, you know, um, affiliated to one of these academies or a national league program, or whatever it might be. And you know, similarly, we don't put. Um, um, a barrier or a ceiling on the aspirations of any of these new and emerging um, LSB clubs. You know, you could be an LSB club with aspirations of going National League yourself. Fantastic. It's what we want. You know, if you can get stronger and get to the point where you're able to go National League, then go for it. And can you talk about any success stories of either players that have come through the LSB or clubs that have come yeah, through I to mean, end up competing National League? You know, I guess the, 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 the most um, notable um, um, club that was started through the LSB programme is the Peckham Pride. You know, um, Sterling has done a fantastic job with the Peckham Pride. Um, you know, and they started off following this model, having an extremely good um, mentor um, and coach in Sterling, who went into Suffolk and, do a, and did a fantastic job in terms of engagement. Um, and then, with the right support from the local authority and so on and so forth, he's been able to grow the Peckham Pride now to national champions. 
you know, and, and so they're a great story. And you know, we've got equally, perhaps not at the national league level, but you know, um, the Brent Ballers over in Brent do a great job in engagement. And they've got great numbers, and similarly, the teams up in Harringay and the Scorpions and so on and so forth. There are a number of clubs around London at the moment that participation numbers are strong, and they're likely to go in the same. Um, pathway that the Peckham Pride have gone in terms of going National League themselves. I think a lot of these clubs do have aspirations as well of, of competing nationally, which is good. You know, and I think what the LSB does and the CBL um, wraparound you know, gives them the forum to be able to develop, um, to be able to go and compete nationally, both on and off the court. And you know, also, I mean, for example, with Peckham Pride, although they're the national champions at the um, under-15 under level, you know, you've got um, their... Uh, development team, if you like, still competing in the CBL. Mm. You know, so it gives. I mean, the CBL is great because it gives players or clubs, should I say, an opportunity. If your your main team, you know, is getting played national league and you've got like a team arguing, say, for 15, 16 players, you know, you can put the other five or six in the CBL so they can get more games, more game experience, and get kids playing more often, more frequently. Um, because again, I'm a great believer in that. You know, our kids don't play enough games nowadays. You know, and it hurts our our, our kids in terms of. Uh, general IQ mm. you know an understanding of the game mm. um, and we're seeing that across the board I think nationally um, at the planes messing with my podcast yeah. good to problem to have man yeah. it goes like a holiday plane above our head <laughs> uh, but yeah I, I think we're seeing that problem um, domestically and, and nationally you know in terms of the overall level and understanding um, of the game and so CBL will give players uh, more opportunities to play in well, what age groups does the CBL go through? So we're trying to um, do as much as possible right now. So we've got the, the youngest age groups under 12s league, yeah. and that's mixed. Then we've got under 14s, 16s, 18s, 20s, and actually got up to 25s. Oh, do you? Yeah, we got up to 25s. I mean, we, we don't want to compete with other local leagues out there. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we do want to make sure we've got an affordable um, opportunity for you know community teams that want to get involved in the league to come and play. And what are the numbers across all those leagues combined? How many players are we talking about? At last uh, last season, we had over a thousand, a thousand two hundred something players across all different divisions or what have you, um, competing. Um, again, this season it's looking like it's going to move up to about one thousand six. And uh, the next season, we want it to be somewhere around a two 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 five mark or so. But again, all of that's related to capacity and being able to facilitate it all. And uh, you know, again, by the time this goes live, hopefully we'll have um, great new news on, on this facility that we're working on. But, you know, it, uh, the capacity and facilities issue is always going to be there until yeah. you get hold of your own facility where you can just do it every day. Yeah, know? of course. It's, uh, it's always going to be an issue because there is a cost. Although we have a partnership with GLL, it just means we get it at uh, a community rate. So you still yeah, need still to pay paying. for it. Yeah, it's, and we still get hit with... Um, you know, a five-figure bill each year for facilities. You know, it was like, oh, where's all the money? Listen, facilities is, is huge for us. I mean, it's um, you know something that we need to collectively conquer if we're going to really break this nut. You know, um, but again, we're doing what we can do, and we'll see. We'll see where it goes. What do you think it is? What, why do you think it is that uh, basketball is so underfunded by the government? I think that um, the government doesn't necessarily recognise because we are fragmented. Yeah. I think it doesn't necessarily recognise the overall um, social impact of yeah. the sport. I don't think it, it recognises the overall potential of the sport. And again, Sam, you know, you've been one of the main um, activists around it all, and I'm sure many of your listeners as well uh, will have had it um, beaten down their heads around the issues around um, elite funding. So I won't go into that one, but certainly you know, my angle from a social impact standpoint, you know, we've got some quantified 
research, research done um, not by us, um, by independent third parties and consultants, consultant groups that have proven that um, on the pilots that we did in London, the social return on basketball investment is uh, for every one pound invested, it returns a social return of eight pounds. Really? Yeah, eight to one ratio. And it's, you know, when those types of figures become more well known and you have an opportunity to go and speak to people about them and show them how yeah. and what impact basketball has on the local, commu local community in terms of um, attacking um, the deprivation index. Yeah. So improving um, educational attainment, yeah. crime prevention, yeah. you know, fear of crime prevention, community cohesion, um, health and well-being. You know, you wrap it all around. You know, the social impact is eight pounds for every one pound invested. Then all of a sudden, you've got an actual, you know, got quite a strong um, case to at least be heard. Yeah. And if you add that to this other argument around, um, you know, the potential of the sport and what it's doing uh, potentially from a performance level, you know, uh, I think if we work together, you know, from a government standpoint, we can uh, potentially be heard and get a much bigger cake for us all to be able to do what we do at a better level. But again, for me, it's um, having so many different independent voices probably isn't helping. You know, everybody thinks that I'm going to be the one that goes into the government and get all the funding. And it's not going to work that way. You know, the government isn't going to fund, you know, I mean, going back to the, what I didn't want to lose, and this ties into this government piece, and that's Sport England stuff, right? You know, why would they fund recent teach they used to fund the NGB mm. you know why would they fund the BBL foundation they used to fund the NGB they still give the NGB something but not everything you know Sport England's perspective on it is that look you know and I completely agree with them you know and it is a bit more of an entrepreneurial spirit to mm -hmm. it all but one they're going to fund where their success is yeah of right? course and then two most interestingly and this isn't just for recent teachers it's for everybody else out there too you know they're absolutely taking a mixed economy approach to funding which is that look you know what let's be fair if we've been given all of our funding to um, one organisation and they haven't been hitting our targets you know if we competitively fund three or four different organisations then you know all of a sudden that organisation going to have to pull its socks up mm. because hey there's something that's proven down our necks yeah, yeah. And, and similarly you know from our standpoint it means that you know I, this is what we said with the media before Sam competition is good you mm. know uh, competition healthy competition a healthy competition means and I've always had this mindset even from the early days of Midnight Madness Competition, you know, um, within this market space isn't about saying, right, I'm going to do everything I can to pull the rug out from under the competitor. Mm -hmm. No, what you, the competition is, right, that's fantastic. You've got what you've got, but I'm going to go back to the lab and work on my stuff to make it so good that, you know what, you present your best, I'll present my best, and let's just see where the, you know, where the marbles fall. And the thing is, what will happen if you take that approach is that the game will benefit because the provision will get better. Mm -hmm. You know, the quality assurances will be better, the leagues will be better, the coaching will be better, everything will get better if it's competitively tendered. And um, Sport England's mindset, and as I said, I don't uh, disagree with them for it, is that uh, they've taken this mixed economy approach because it means that ultimately they'll get more bang for their buck. Mm -hmm. Rather than just saying, right, let's just go over there and just go with the status quo, let's see if anybody else can do anything. Yeah. And I think it's the right approach. It's like the whole gambling thing by putting money on loads of different, loads of different options Absolutely. you can't really Absolutely. lose. And, it, and it's not, um, I should also say, you know, Reach and Teach is a name that's been put around the table, oh, Reach and Teach got funding. You know, we're not the only one and it's open to other people too. Yeah. You know, all, the, all they've got to do, I almost feel like I'm giving a, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the secrets away about, look, how you go out there and get funding. But yeah. you know, look, as I said before, anything I can do 
to help the game and other organisations quote, quote quote unquote get on it's going to benefit us yeah, it's yeah. going to benefit you it's going to benefit everybody and my, my whole thing is that other organisations can do what we've done yeah. but what you've got to do and this is the, the, the missing piece to all of this is you know there's this misnomer that oh yeah, yeah no, you just got money from Nike and you were made nothing that we've done hasn't happened without a tremendous work ethic yeah. right We've been doing this for 15 years you know that whole 10,000 hours thing we've got like 50, 60,000 hours yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? and, and it's been a lot of um, um, even with the best laid intentions you know uh, a lot of trial and error you know a lot of things we've had to learn um, the hard way um, however we've refined what we've done um, over this time to be able to present something that works we know it works because we know what it takes to make it work mm-hmm. and so what I would say to other organisations is as we said you know, we're talking about the public sector at the moment, but it's the same thing that we said about the private sector before. Know your product inside out. Mm. Know exactly what I like. There's, you know, and I say this to people now all the time, right? I can go into uh, Port Cullis House or whatever it may be in a um, Houses of Parliament and go and speak to people about what we do at um, the political level. But at the same time, I still today can go up hands-on to any single one of our sessions and deliver a firing session. Yeah. So I know exactly what it takes to do it because I've built it with these bare hands. I've built it up and I've trained other people to do it too and they've added am- amazing things to it. I mean, Junior and all the guys have been fantastic. But there's no element to our organisation at this point that I don't know. Yeah. And, and so what I would say to other organisations is that, look, know your product, You know, get in underneath the bonnet of it all, learn how it works and refine the pieces that aren't working so when you do go to Sport English and whoever else, mm-hmm. you know, you've got an answer for yeah. everything that they can come with. I mean, people can throw anything at me from a, a reach and teaching LSB standpoint in those forums because I know it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have to go and, oh, let me think about it. I know because I know exactly what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think you, it's the same thing, Sam, if I were to sit here and I'd talk to you about hoops fix, you know inside out, you know, what's under the bonnet, where you're going with it, and what you want to do yeah. because you run it hands-on. Yeah. And I think that's the approach that... Um, other organisations need to take too. You need to really get, you know, underneath. If, if you're in basketball, you know, to make it your quote-unquote profession, it needs to be that. So don't think, oh, yeah, well, we all used to play the game so we can just be professional at running the game. No, you need to. There's two things. You either go out and acquire the skills in terms of buying them in mm-hmm. um, or you've got to spend the necessary time and due diligence learning them yourself yeah. um, and making sure that you upskill yourself to the point where you're able to compete with um, what other people may buy in. Now, I, I know right now, for example, from a Midnight Madness standpoint, you know, you could probably go out there and buy in um, a certain set of skills to run an event the way that we do. And I'm in conversations, you know, Sam, internationally in that forum. But I've realized, it's been interesting to me, but I've realized over the last two years, um, no, I'm not going to say that, it sounds like I'm bragging, so I'm not going to say that. But, um, <laughs> I don't think that there's many people out there that can that know as much as I do around doing what we do in the summer space. Yeah. Right. In terms of how the whole wraparound works, um, I'm not necessarily saying there are not better creatives out there than mm-hmm. me. Um, certainly, definitely better people that do the social media than we do. Mm-hmm. You know, resources is always an issue over that whole stuff. But in terms of what needs to happen and how it all shapes together and what the key benchmarks are, you know, uh, through the hours that I've invested over the years and it is a 365 grind you know um, I don't think there's anybody better position to advise on what we do and I think I'd say to other organisations understanding what it is that you do be the best at what it is that you do you know locally you yeah. know if that's your thing and then if you can do that then um, 
the funding will be there. People think, oh, there's no money in basketball. There is money out there, Sam. Yeah. There's money all around. We're in the UK. I've been to regions around the world where there is no money yeah, for yeah. basketball. And they're doing more with it than yeah. we are. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're out here with some kits at the moment, um, you know, on the invitation, obviously, of the sports ministry, which has been great. You know, there are no indoor gyms on this island. Yeah. <laughs> Yet their outdoor gym, which is, you know, they don't have resource for basketball here at all. There's no basketball budget. Their outdoor gym, their outdoor court is better than anything we've got in London. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's got seating. It's got glass backboards and uh, um, the sports cover tiling. And I'm like, you know, how is that is crazy? But, you know, again, just as I say, you know, not, not to go off on a tangent, I just think, honestly think that um, all the organisations out there and activists out there and those who aspire to get involved in the game, the first step is absolutely learn your craft and put the necessary time in. And again, Sam, you know, we talk about this, but people from the outside looking in see what you do. Think, oh, yeah, fantastic. Hoops, it's hoops, freaks. They have no idea around the amount of hours that you put in. And I think that whether it's media, whether it's grassroots, whether it's events, whatever it is, whether it's the professional game, the generic um, um, equity, if you like, the generic currency is work ethic. Mm. And you're gonna get success in any one of those areas if you put the work in. And um, I think a lot of people out there uh, want the success about doing the work. And that's where the problems come in. You're not going to get it unless you put the work in. Um, and it's hard. You know, let's not forget that. It's hard. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's so hard, it burns a lot of people out. Mm. It really does. And I've had, you know, over the years, um, seen lots of people come and go because it's, it's very, very demanding emotionally and physically. Um, but the thing for me is I, I realised years ago when I tried to leave the game temporarily, I can't because it's in my blood. And mm. it's, uh, you know... Uh, uh, I was going to say unfortunately, but it's not unfortunately. I love the game. You know, I love the game to the bone. Um, you know, and it's because of my own personal history with the game. It means a lot more to me, I guess, than I guess just the average person. And so, because of it, you know, although it's a lot of work, it's like you, Sam. You're passionate about the game of basketball. Because of it, you know, you're working, but you know, you're also chasing your passion. Mm. And so, because of it, you don't necessarily keep a tab on how many hours you're doing because yeah. you're chasing your passion. And what you're trying to do is get things done. And so you might not think about the last, you know, 200 billable hours you just put into doing a video. Yeah, yeah. I'm about to get a video out there. Yeah. It's the same thing what we do as well. So, you know, follow your passions. And if you are passionate about it and for the right reasons, It'll the rest of the stuff out. will fall to come. So we're at one, one, one hour, 18 minutes. So I don't want to drag this on too yeah. long. So we're going to start wrapping it up. But what I want to do is fire a few, well, fire a few quick, quick fire questions at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give some quick answers to uh, sure. and then we will finish up so starting with uh, Midnight Madness yeah. highest point and lowest point wow okay highest point I'm going to say to date um, us winning game two in Chicago that's probably the highest point that was uh, unexpected it was our first win on US soil in terms of the series yeah. um, nobody thought we were going to do it uh, we had an amazing coach in Sam Stellar and brought the team together and the guys were amazing. So I'd say highest point, Chicago. Lowest point, ooh, ooh, wow. I'd say... <laughs> well, all right, I'll give you a quick one in this one. <laughs> lowest point for me probably was a life-threatening one. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, again, for sake of safety, we won't mention names or regions, but there was one year where we did a Midnight Madness on the road and... Um, in order to um, ensure that the event could actually go on that night, I had to go on the day of an event and negotiate with some pretty serious gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, 
um, in, in this city, in a region I won't mention. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of the guys that knew I was going there were actually fearful that I wouldn't come back. Really? So that was pretty, uh, that was pretty daunting. I mean, that uh, man is staying true to his name. Yeah, yeah. Real madness. Madness, pure madness. But we uh, managed to put it on, so that worked. Sweet. Um, best junior basketball player you've ever seen? Mm, I'm going to go with... Can I give you one and I have honourable mentions? Yep. All right, honourable mentions, I'm going to go... Um, bah, 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 bah. I'm going to go Adju Den, who was amazing. Um, West London, I'm going to go Jermaine Forbes. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> Jermaine Forbes in there. But I'm going to say... Also, David Lavinia, who a lot of guys won't know, but he was you know, probably the best shooter, junior shooter we've ever had in the country. He was amazing. Um, but in terms of who I've seen mm-hmm. come up and how dominant he was as a junior in terms of just being purely unstoppable, I'm probably going to go with Drew. Drew was, uh, he was uh, as under 15, 16. He was a lot to handle, man. Mm-hmm. He was a lot to handle. So I'd go with Drew, I'd say. Um, if you could change one thing about British basketball, what would it be? One thing about British basketball, I would say, so if I change this thing, it means it's going to be perfect. Yeah. Right, give us a perfect professional league. Uh, give us a perfect professional league, everything else will fall together. Okay. Um, what else can I throw at you? Uh, who, who have you got tabs on in terms of the next, the next future GB star? Mm. Who should we be keeping an eye on? Mm. Who do I, you like? I, I think my... My number one guy is probably no secret to anybody, uh, but I just believe in him. I know his dad really well. Um, I came through just after his dad finished playing, so at my age, but um, Luke Nelson. Luke Nelson, for me, is the guy. I think that, um, you know, not just because of, um, you know, everybody else, how oh, this guy can play, but what I look for is the heart and the competitiveness and the big shot well, you know what I call it I'm not sure I'm going to say it on the podcast but you know uh, the size of his balls <laughs> you know you've got to have that big shot mentality yeah. and he's got it in abundance you know he's got the confidence but he's also got the work ethic you know and I think um, you know Luke for me is um, you know somebody that uh, I think can uh, all things go all things being equal can go very very far in the game very far in the game best performance you've ever seen on a basketball court at any level Ooh, wow anyone mm. ever really blown your mind Eesh, yeah there have been a few man there have been a few but ooh, 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 ooh. I'll tell you what I'll do I, I, can I tell you the best junior game I ever saw yeah alright so the best junior game I ever saw would be um, Brixton against Towers Adju Deng against um, Andrew Sullivan that game was amazing and how long ago are we talking? What year was this? Um, man, we're going back into the 90s now. Okay. It's like a de- decades ago. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you're talking about two players at the peak of the game who literally were going back to back to back in a game of can you top that? You know, and, and as you'll come down, shake and bake, jumper or short jump hook, Drew will come down and do something amazingly athletic. I mean, the thing is, People saw Drew Sullivan at his peak in the BBL and he was a real good athlete. Yeah. He was even better athlete when he was a uh, you know, 16-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, jumping out of the gym, you know, handling the ball, just a terror, long, spindly terror, you know, and I think that's probably the best junior game I ever saw. But Who won and who, who finished up with what? Well, Do you remember? Uh, I think we got to give that one to Drew. You know, Drew, <laughs> Drew was the guy, man. Drew was the guy. I mean, don't get me wrong, Adju has done some things on the court that... Uh, Nobody else ever in GB has done. I mean, I've seen the guy do some things that, you know, 
for those that don't know who Hajudeng is, you know, Luar's older brother, you know, he was, um, it's fortunate for us all that we've got Kevin Durant now. You know, literally, he was Kevin Durant before Kevin Durant. He was 6'11", handle, shoot, and moves like Durant. This is before his, you know, he had the, the really serious injuries with his feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy literally was Kevin Durant before Kevin Durant. I mean, it's not just us saying it. You can ask Jim Calhoun and UConn. They said they anticipated him being the best ever player to play at UConn, ever. You know, he was that good. And I don't think you have Luar without Adju. You know, similarly, you don't have Pops without Kojo. You know, the elder brothers had to go through what they went through in order to prepare the younger brothers. Mm. And um, we have Pops and Luar because of um, Kojo and Adju. So Adju was an amazing player. But I, I would say that, um, you know, I guess stretching back in terms of amazing things, if I just keep it GB focused, yeah. you know, under, um, under the radar stuff that a lot of listeners won't listen to, uh, won't, won't uh, know, um, guys like Sam Stiller, who people yeah. know as a coach, you know, he's the best British shooter I've ever seen in person. And I'm talking about when he was at his peak. Everybody saw, oh, yeah, Sam gave you did, Yeah, Sam gave you buckets. He was like 39, 40. <laughs> I'm talking about when he was in his prime. And yeah. When I was a kid, I used to play at this um, place called uh, North London College, yeah. right, which was the, really the mecca for basketball in London. It was funded by the GLC, GLC back then, which is like the, like the equivalent of the mayor's office now. You could go there and play every single day. You know, it was open um, in the evenings from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. and all day Sundays, all day Saturdays. And so all the best players used to go there. And they had a small gym on the side where you could go to practice where guys like me used to go if you weren't allowed on the main court. But I used to go and watch guys like, you know, Steve Button play there, Sam Stella. But Sam Stella, absolutely hands down the best shoot I've ever seen. I mean, the guy, and it sounds like folklore, but literally comes across half court, takes two or three dribbles, um, and he'll pull up and he'll fade to the side. He used to do the fadeaways to the side. Not fade away like a, a Kobe fade away. Yeah, yeah. Jumps up in your face, with a face to the side, shoots it midair. If he ever hit rim, which is very rare, he'd count it as a miss. <laughs> I mean, the guy could absolutely shoot the, the level off the ball, man. And, and it's because he was a, an absolutely torrid uh, workout guy, yeah. you know. All day, he used to he'd burn guys out, going one-on-one with him full court, shooting for six hours. You know, again, just a testament to that, you know, players are made in the gym. Yeah. And Sam is a testament to that, just an absolutely incredible shooter. Absolutely incredible shooter. And last question... Uh, Best or favourite British coach? Ooh, man. Um, I'm going to say, for me, I think that the, you know, tipping my hat to those that have come before us, you know, obviously, uh, Jimmy Rogers is, um, you know, uh, his resume speaks for itself. But for me personally, um, I'm going to go with Joe White. I'm going to go with Joe White because... Um, everybody knows Joe White as oh yeah he was this incredible mentor mm. you know and he was for me as well an incredible mentor but you know I coached against Joe uh, just a quick history on Joe for me I first saw Joe um, at North London College when he was playing mm-hmm. you know and he was this big guy but man he could pass the ball right and he was creating for like the Baker twins and you know all these other guys um, I thought man he really understands the game at this next level oh, and later on in life I'd get to play against his teams you know, going back and forth against the Towers guys and whatever. And then later on from that, I actually coached against him. And, you know, Joe just knew, you know, he was like a savant. You know, he knew the game at a level that you can't teach in um, a manual or any course. Mm. Right? His feel for the game and the pace and the rhythm of the game. You know, there are a lot of coaches out there that put together fantastic um, practices, you know, and, and game plans. Um, but 
you know, one of the problems that we have in our game, I think, are not that many good game coaches that have a really good feel for the game, mm. a good tempo for the game, um, and understand the rhythm of the game to be able to change up on the fly what's needed and when, mm-hmm. right? And know their players well enough to be able to implement those changes on the fly to get the desired result. Joe was a master of doing that. He had his players to a point where it felt like he was a composer, an orchestra, and he knew what pieces to put, when, how to get to do what he wanted. He had the referees eating out of his hand, <laughs> and it was psychological. Joe would never, Joe would not hurt a fly, right? yeah. but it was psychological. By the time you got to the fourth quarter, Joe was always getting the calls. Yeah. Right? He just, he was just again, and, and his the plays he ran, the defenses he employed, you know, it was almost like saying. Um, Know, who's your greatest composer? Do you want to go with somebody that's got like a, a thick volume of written work or somebody that was just the best improviser, best guy improvising you've ever seen ever? And that was Joe. He was just an absolute natural in terms of his thoughts and feelings and understanding of the game. And um, again, you just learn so much. You know, and the reason why I say that, Sam, whether as a player or as a coach, I never learned more um, competing against somebody than I did Joe. You know, he just taught you so much. And after the game, he made sure he came over with his big arm around your shoulder and say, you know, you okay? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Go get off, Joe. It's all right, I'm all right. You know, and he's like, look, he goes, you know, uh, third quarter, man, you know, you got to really work out how, you know, um, you're going to get through our press because you know it's coming, you know. And what, what are you thinking about when you put in number eight or this something? You think, oh, wow. He's actually giving me pointers as to how I can improve my coaching. Yeah, yeah. And he was just, um, you know, absolutely, um, you know, if, if, the, if British basketball, have more Joe Whites, man, would be world beaters. We would. I mean, for the talent development element, the mental element, and also, you know, his, his knowledge of the game. Just mm. absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. And that's no slight on anybody else because there are other great coaches as yeah, well. Yeah, but yeah. for me, personally, Joe's just, uh, you know, above that radar for me. Okay. And then, so, if anyone wants to contact you, what are your outposts? Do we have a Twitter, an email address, anything that you're happy to give out um, yeah, for absolutely. people to get in touch? So, the, the, the main thing is, um, and Sam will know this I'm probably the worst person in British basketball on social media <laughs> you know, I let all of our guys run the you know the, the social media stuff but I mean I do have um, a Twitter account which I promised myself that I'm going to start getting active on and that's Narmo Shiri uh, it's at Narmo Shiri 8 I believe or 08 Sam will know I think it's 8 8 there you go you know better than me <laughs> um, but I'd say the best and easiest thing that I am on frequently is if you check me on Facebook yep. you know I, I'd regularly check that and you'll probably see some blurbs for the voice of reason on it now and again <laughs> so you can get at me uh, my Facebook is just Narmo Shiri um, and then obviously um, you know stay up to date with all the other stuff that we do on the website so every reach and teach um, or which reach and teach dot uk or uh, midnightmadness dot tv perfect Namo it's been amazing thank you so much we kept on topic uh, it's been really interesting and maybe uh, in the future we we'll have to get you on for a part two looking forward to it Sam keep on doing the work that you do because without you this game doesn't work Sam thanks man <laughs>